She is a filmmaker and writer based in Brooklyn. Her work fuses humor and personal storytelling to disturb what's considered most sacred about womanhood. She is currently writing and directing the in-progress documentary, My So-Called Selfish Life. She most recently directed How to Lose Your Virginity, released in 2013, about the mythology and misogyny around her most precious gift. Her other documentaries include the award-winning I Was a Teenage Feminist and How I Learned to Speak Turkish. A frequent public speaker, she's very interesting, very funny, and very entertaining. Firecrackers, let's welcome Therese. Welcome to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. I'm Isabel, your host and founder and firebrand of The Uprising Spark, a digital platform that offers life coaching products and services for modern, independent, child-free women. Our aim is to build a strong female community and to connect empowered women around the globe. I was on Instagram today and then I came across one of these Trixie films, the latest post, and it said something, it just caught my eye because it was something like Krispy Kreme and Kevin Skipacy and I was like, what's going on here? And then I read that you were a Sundance Film Festival volunteer. Yes. So I was a volunteer at the Sundance Film Festival from about 2001 to 2007. And uh, basically you go there for a week and a half and you have a work slot and you do that every day and then in the evening you can go see all the movies you want for free and all the parties you could possibly get into um and to eat through and drink through because you really don't have time to sit and eat or drink at all and it's great i saw really unbelievable movies that actually gave me that final push to start making documentaries because the documentaries i saw there were so original and unlike what I defined the documentary to be, I guess. And I thought, oh, this is cool. So you can make a documentary like this. That's neat. <laughs> you know, that's funny or that's animated or that's very personal or whatever. So um, when I came back from my first year volunteering at Sundance, I immediately got into a documentary workshop. And out of that workshop came my first documentary film. So I credit the Sundance Film Festival with getting me to my first film. That's so awesome. Thanks. Before we get started on, on your documentaries that you have already done and produced and the one that you're actually doing right now, is there any like funny story that you remember about Sundance that you would like to share? With oh! <laughs> <laughs> drop some oh. names, drop some names. <laughs> what a question that is. Well, I should tell you that every year that I was at Sundance, I would send um, this sort of Sundance journal out to all my friends on email. Um, every few days, I would write some, you know, diary entry to share with everyone to give them the behind the scenes. And over the years, um, hot tubs were <laughs> a recurring theme. And whatever uh, crush I had on whatever celebrity that I wasn't even going to meet, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff goes on at Sundance, in and out of hot tubs and things. So <laughs> there, were, <laughs> there were a lot of interesting stories that I'm absolutely not going to share with you. But if anyone wants to read the journals, <laughs> then they're very welcome to 
to read them. They were really fun to do. Uh, this was before blogs, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, so I would just send these out. I mean, it, after a while, I realized, oh, I'm doing what is now called a blog. But I didn't really understand that at the time. Okay. So funny stories. I mean, a lot of it was just like looking at what people were wearing, you know, like when the Uggs thing started or all the actresses who were wearing stiletto heels on icy sidewalks or um, this thing where all the guys started growing really bushy beards, which I, I identified back in 2002, I believe, this giant lumberjack beard thing. But my first year at Sundance, my job was special events, which meant that I was working at all the parties. So Sundance has a lot of official parties. And so I was one of the people who set up, but I also was one of the people who had to sit at the door and check people's badges and check names off a list. And these parties were like, they were fine. They weren't amazing. They were just fine. But people showed up really desperate to get into the parties. And I had to deal with all of these guys, mostly guys, who were like, don't you know who I am? I have a film at Sundance. I'm a producer, all of this. And I'm like, are you on the list? I don't see you on the list. I mean, you know, we were, they were really strict about it. And um, people offering me a wad of $20 bills to get them into this party, which happened several times. And I would always say, this party is not that good. Do not waste your money. It's, it's not that good. Uh, but also, I, I could, of course, get fired. So I was like, you know, put that fucking money away. You're going to get me fired. Um, but I did, I did have experiences with fairly famous people, like Kevin Spacey, <laughs> who did not have, like, I recognized him. This was long before he became infamous. But, you know, I recognized him. And, like, people like Kevin Spacey, you just sort of have to let in. like. You know, you're not going to keep them out. But he did not have the right credentials, I just have to say. And then sometimes people would show up and they would be like super nice and super sweet and not famous and not pretending to be famous. And then I would say, if you stand over here, give me a few minutes and I'll see what I can do. And I would always get them into the party. I would just wave them in, which... Sundance, you can't fire me now. So but like when people, and this is like a life lesson I learned when people are polite and nice and patient and don't like try to impress you with non-existent credits, you know, I, I would be very motivated to help them. I would also tell them the party isn't really that good, but you can't tell people that they don't believe you. Yeah. So that was fun. That was a terrible job. I never did special events again. After that, I always worked in a venue called the Filmmaker Lodge which is where all the panels were. So we actually did get our share of actors and directors and things coming through for panels. And there was this very chill environment. And it was one of the few Sundance venues that you could get into without any kind of badge. Like anyone and everyone was welcome at the Filmmaker Lodge. And I really liked working at a place like that, that like not exclusive in any way. So it just had a really nice vibe. It was the friendliest place at Sundance, honestly. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, I couldn't even imagine. I really want to go to one of these film film festivals one day. I remember when I lived in I lived in Paris for a few years, and I had a friend. He was like the creme de la creme of Parisian people, very French, and he would always get tickets to go to Cannes Film Festival. And he would like yeah. send me these pictures <laughs> in his tuxedo and the red carpet with you know everyone who was someone at that time in Hollywood. 
but um, he never actually invited me over. <laughs> I know, right? That's yeah. And that was really nice to him. Like he just said, if you're nice to people and polite, it's true that you can get away with murder. That's for sure. I think so. And you know, the last time I was at Sundance was in 2012. The last couple of times I was there, I was there as press, actually. So I was doing press, doing shooting videos for people. And it was really strange not being a volunteer because when you're a volunteer, you've got the inside scoop on everything and you can get into most things for free. And then when you're just there, like as a regular person, I didn't feel plugged into the festival at all, which was a very strange and unhappy feeling. But on the other hand, I got to go to all the press screenings and didn't have to wait in line. So I guess that was a good thing. But I tell people all the time, it used to be that Sundance, like you just had to find a place to stay. But Sundance is a very easy, fun, friendly festival. There's nothing magical about it. Um, you go, you stand in line for tickets, you hang out. There's a lot of free stuff that like corporate parties and things. And it's great. Anybody who's listening to me thinking, oh, I wish I could go to Sundance. You can you just have to get there and find a place to stay. Now, these days, it's really hard to find a place to stay because like Netflix has bought half the condos in Park City and Amazon has bought the other remaining <laughs> condos okay. for, for their staff or something. So I was going to go this year. I really wanted to go this year and I couldn't find a place to stay. Wow. So yeah, boo. boo. Yeah, I couldn't. The, the people I know that usually like rent a, a big ski condo and rent out the rooms where it's going and so that's why I'm here in New York but okay. I do encourage people to go it's not a big deal and it's really fun cool so we have to thank them for giving you that that last push you needed to become a documentary filmmaker and now you produce and make funny feminist films which I love <laughs> so which, which yes. was the first one that you did? So the first film was called I Was a Teenage Feminist. It was a very personal film, trying to reconnect to the power that the feminist movement gave me when I was a teenager. Way back in the 70s, as I was approaching 40, I felt like I had lost my connection to everything that made me feel powerful and cool. And um, so the film was really about trying to figure out what does it mean to be a feminist in the 21st century and uh, how do I reconnect with that? And that's the film I was working on in this documentary workshop that I was doing. Uh, I was actually just doing a proposal in the workshop. We just had to create a proposal, like come up with an idea and ideas for funding and characters. And it's just the kind of basic document you make when you start telling people about a film. You weren't supposed to actually make a film. That was not like part of the deal at all. But halfway through this workshop, the professor who became a really great mentor of mine said, you're going to make this film, right? <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not making this film. <laughs> he said, no, no, I think you have to make this film. Here, take my camera, go interview someone. And I went and interviewed my mother. <laughs> who was in the film now. Yeah. Um, and he knew that I would just fall down the rabbit hole. As soon as I started, he, he knew that I would just become hooked, which was absolutely true. But, you know, it's people like that in your life that believe in you, like way more than you could ever believe in yourself. They really push you and they change your life, really. So I'm really grateful. His name is Matthew Alston. He's a wonderful documentary filmmaker. Yeah, it's all his fault. 
basically. <laughs> um, so, so that was the film. I started making it in 2001. And I remember I was telling people about the film and people were very negative. They said, why do you want to make a film about feminism? Like, oh, why do you even want to talk about that? It was not anything people ta- were talking about, certainly not in a positive way. And, uh, and it was like, well, I think that's probably why I should make this film, actually, folks. Um, so it, I wasn't really deterred. And it ended up being a really great project. And it did actually reconnect me to the feminist movement and made me much more of an activist and made me a lot smarter about what it was all about. And so, yeah, you know, thanks for letting me work out all my issues in this documentary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that was the first film, yeah. Yeah. And then came, the was it the virginity one? Yes, I have done a bunch of short films, but these are like the full-length films. So this, my second full-length film was How to Lose Your Virginity, which was about the myths and mythology around Uh, virginity culture and how we talk about women and sexuality, especially young women. I did learn one important thing, which is if you want to show your film to teenagers in a high school, you cannot call it how to lose your virginity. (laughs) (laughs) Because they're going to think it's like a guy. (laughs) (laughs) Duly noted. Yeah. Uh, I did. I did end up screening it for teenagers quite a bit through organizations that no high school would touch it. They just, I guess they just imagine like some parent reading that they were showing this film and like, you know, yeah, showing up with pitchforks and things. <laughs> so that was a good lesson. But it was a really interesting film. And it really, for me, grew out of the um, abstinence until marriage programs in the United States in the 2000s, which are still going strong, by the way. And how everyone, all the young people on the Disney shows had to wear uh, purity rings. I thought maybe it was in their contract or something. But there were all these famous professional virgins out there. And it was a very strange thing because it just like kept reinforcing the idea that as a woman, your value basically lies between your legs. And, you know, what, what you're doing or not doing sort of determines what kind of person you are. It was something I was feeling really strongly about. It really pissed off. Anger is so good, like, to keep you working on something. I was really pissed (laughs) off about it. You know, and we were dealing with slut shaming and all of the stuff that we're still talking about today. You know, rape culture, how women are blamed for, for getting themselves raped because they didn't protect their precious gift well enough. Things like that. So that took a long time to make, though. That film took... I want to say like seven years to finish. Wow. Because yeah, it was a, it was mostly a funding issue. We just could not find any money to make that film. It was really hard. Um, And then we finally did uh, not one, but two Kickstarter campaigns, which helped us raise a bunch of money, but that was, it took a long time. It was, it was difficult. And that's the way it is with a lot of independent filmmaking. It's just, really hard to raise money. And if you're not doing something that people like understand, you know, or have seen on the front page of the newspaper or something, sometimes it's very hard to um, make a case for why uh, a foundation should support you. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, if you're going against the mainstream and whatever people accept as, you know, this is how it is. I can imagine how there can be some resistance. 
from people being like, ah, oh, maybe I'm not, I don't want to fund that, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And also I realized that I make films on topics that people are super uncomfortable about. So oh, yeah. <laughs> that's also, <laughs> you know, making, making a film about virginity and sexuality, like people are very uncomfortable talking about that. Like they're like, they'll talk about like Kim Kardashian sex life, but talking about your own sex life and sexual history, um, you know, makes people very uncomfortable. So when you're telling them what you're working on, they get uncomfortable. Oh yeah. <laughs> and the whole, the whole point of making the films I make is to get people to be less uncomfortable with these ideas and more used to the idea that, yes, we can talk about this stuff. And, you know, telling the truth about our lives is actually a really good thing for everybody and makes us all feel like we're not alone, we're not crazy. Uh, but, yeah, when you're fundraising for a film that doesn't exist yet, <laughs> you're getting a lot of, you know... Actually, when I was working on How to Lose Your Virginity, I was still... I think I had just... It was my last year of volunteering at Sundance, and I was at a party telling some people what the film was about. And this one guy said to me, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm only interested in dating virgins. I said, really? Wow. Why is that? And he said, well, they're just clean. I'm like, clean? Like, in what way clean? <laughs> oh, my God. And, and he said, you know, they're clean. Like, nobody else has been there before me. So and I'm thinking, man, you're disgusting. I know. You know, you, you have to wonder how many people actually feel that way. Oh, a lot. Like, they want to be the first one in, you know. A lot of, like, I can tell you from my experience that when I was, I was younger, a lot younger. Um, so girls, my generation, they were losing their virginity 15 and 17 on, on average. Um, and I remember being more or less 13 or 14 years old. And there was, um, I had a group of friends and we would always like hang out or whatever. And they were, I was the youngest one. And I really remember this one guy telling another guy, like right in front of my face, but he was talking to the other guy who was like, she's a virgin and that virginity belongs to me. And I was like, what the fuck? Is this like, what you know, like, yeah, seriously. He was like that, like her virginity belongs to me, basically. And I was like, um, I was too young at the time to like, I don't know, stand up and slap him across the face or anything. But that's just <laughs> that's the kind of shit we have to put up with, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a great scene in the film. I have this recurring thing in How to Lose Your Virginity where I'm talking to college students and they're answering a question that I've asked them. And it's like a collection of answers, you know, to each question. So one of the questions was, what is the right number of partners, sexual partners for a woman to have? Which is like the stupidest question in the world. But people answered me very seriously. They were like, five. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, like, I think it would be five, any more than that. And I don't think that's so good. <laughs> and it's like, you know, think about, let's just sit and think about that. Yeah. Like, I didn't even, I just said sexual partners. I didn't even specify like what kind of sex it would be. Mm. And there was this one guy who was like a real sweetheart, but he was like, yeah, I think it would be five. <laughs> and I said, what if I told you that I had had 30 partners before I got married? And he said, oh, I hope your husband doesn't find out. 
<laughs> oh, <laughs> he was like really like oh 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 so yeah that was pretty interesting i have a question for you because actually i just um i just remembered i was reading something so i was doing some research for a blog post that i want to write for child free girls and i came across with this term and it's a reborn virgin oh yeah yeah i was like what does that mean yeah, it can mean a couple of things, actually. Uh, a born-again virgin, I think, is is the term, but it could be also reborn virgin. So a born-again virgin, well, you know, a born-again Christian, right, is somebody who sort of rededicates themselves to accepting Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, right? They've lapsed from the religion, maybe, and they're now called back to it. Um, so a born-again virgin might be somebody who has had sex, had intercourse, whatever, but has now rededicated themselves to being chaste. So um, sort of getting their virginity back spiritually, maybe you could say. It could also be someone, a woman or someone with a vagina who has gotten surgery. Um, there, there is a surgery called um, hymenoplasty, which is basically hymen reconstruction so you know the hymen is just this little membrane that separates the sort of outside of your genitals and your vagina it's this little membrane it has a little hole in it where blood goes out during your period tampons go in whatever usually there's just one hole sometimes there's more than one hole in very rare cases it's sealed over completely you need to go have a little bit of surgery done for that Okay, so the hymen really has nothing to do with anything to do with your virginity or even sexual history for that matter. But it has become this huge symbol of like definitive proof of this woman's sexual history, which is completely not true. But anyway, so people want to, on their wedding night, appear to be virgins. And what that means is they want to bleed. Because if you bleed on your wedding night, the belief is that that means you're a virgin. Again, completely without any kind of medical or physical merit, <laughs> not at all. But um, so, but people get uh, like a stitch put into their hymen, basically, so that um, if something goes in like a penis, it will break the stitch and there'll be blood which is just a, a really sad thing, but in places where women could get killed for being suspected of not being virgins on their wedding night, it's kind of a life-saving operation. I know that even women who have never had intercourse, never had any kind of penetration, will go get the stitch put in just to guarantee that they bleed. Wow. So this idea of virginity is really messed up. But people, people get this done. They get this stitch to guarantee the bleeding. And, uh, and you could also be a born-again virgin in that way because you, you have a little stitch in your hymen so the next time you are penetrated by a penis or whatever, um, you will bleed. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's fucked up. You're listening to The Honest Uproar a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. 
let's talk now about the child-free documentary, My So-Called Selfish Life, which I absolutely love that title because it's just like, that's the one thing that we get called like all the time. You're selfish. You don't have kids. You're selfish. So let's talk about that film. Another topic that people don't want to talk about because it makes them really uncomfortable. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> at least it won't get me like kicked out of the those schools I hope but anyway um yeah so this is a film that I've been working on for a few years now uh we are working on a rough cut which means we're editing the film we're, we're finished shooting and we're putting it together I hope very much it will be done this year it depends on getting our final finishing funds but the plan is to have it all done this year so I'm very excited that it's this far along and this film really grew out of something I had been thinking about for much of my life, which is the fact that I didn't want children. And it wasn't something I ever talked to anyone about, except maybe one friend. I told my mother when I was a teenager that I wasn't going to have kids. She was incredibly cool about it, honestly. Um, but then I never really talked about it again. I kind of assumed I would have kids anyway, because everyone had kids in my mind. So I I would have to have them too, even though I didn't want them, which is horrible, actually, thinking that you were then you were going to have to grow up and do this incredibly all consuming life changing thing that you didn't want to do. Because that's what people do. Anyway, uh, you know, a few years ago, I saw more and more personal storytelling around not wanting children, there seemed to be a little bit of an explosion of personal storytelling, people were talking about it more. And also people were talking about all the shitty things people were saying to them when they said they didn't want kids, uh, hence the selfish part. And uh, I really started thinking, like, why are we getting so much shit for not wanting children? Why are people calling us names? Uh, why are we being excluded from things? Why are we being treated as, you know, broken, deviant, immature people? All of that. And I actually, what I thought was, it can't just be that people are rude. I think there's more going on than just people being rude. I think they're learning this from somewhere. And so that kind of got me started on trying to figure out, like, what kind of messages do we grow up with that make us say these things? And can I uh, show a whole bunch of sort of cool, different, diverse, child-free people so people can see what their lives are like and what they think? So all of that's come together in this film. Um, and uh, it's really like, again, about like, can we just have a conversation about this and figure out what's going on? And can we talk about all of this mythology around motherhood and what a real woman is and biological clocks and all of it? So that's, that's what I'm working on. It's been really, really interesting. Yeah, I can only imagine the amount of just information that you have been able to gather for this film. We actually had the chance to talk in New York uh, mm -hmm. last year and we yeah. did exchange a bunch of things. And I was like, Oh my God, like every time you told me like, and I found this and then I was like, I really <laughs> need to, I really need to see that. Documentary. <laughs> it's like, I really need to see that because I mean, as a child-free woman myself, I know what it is to get all the, you know, the criticism and people just, oh, this is the, you know, the one thing that I've been talking about in my, my blogging and in, in my 
social media and also with the child free girls is we get told a lot to shut up. Like, oh, why are you talking about being told? Like, who cares if you want to have a kid? Like, just don't have the kid. Why do you have to tell the whole world? Like, shut up. And I was like, I'm not. I always tell them I'm not going to shut up. I mean, because you never tell a parent to shut up about their kids. Mm-hmm. Go and That's try right. to do that. Try and do that. You get smacked. No, I mean, that, that's the thing. It's the, the, the uncomfortable conversations and the uncomfortable topics. That's what people want to, um, they want to censor that topic or they want to like shut it down because it just makes, it makes them really uncomfortable. Yeah. So I think it's really important to carry on with the conversation. So, you know, this film that you're making now and everything that everyone in our, in our community puts out there. It's it's not like we're trying to convert people into becoming child free. You know, it's not like we're a sect and we're like, oh, I'm here and become child free. No, right. Just telling people you have a choice. Whatever you decide is okay. Mm-hmm. We're cool with it. But you have a choice. That's that's the thing that I think is the the big message that we want to put out there. Absolutely, and you know, people who say, "Why are you talking about this? Nobody cares." It's like, really? If nobody cared, <laughs> what I hear so much shit about. When are you having kids? Why don't you have kids? What's wrong with you? Who's going to take care of you when you're old? Uh, Why did you even get married? Marriages are for having kids. What if your husband leaves you because he wants kids and you don't? I mean, all of this, like, are you kidding me? Like, people really want to talk about it. (laughs) I don't want to talk to them about that, but people really want to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, It's amazing. But I will also say that, like, when I started working on this, documentary, the first thing I did was put up a survey on, um, you know, one of those Google surveys, mm-hmm. because I wanted to hear about the experiences of people who didn't have kids. Because really, all I had to go on was my life and a few friends' lives. And so I asked a lot of questions about it, about whether they were child-free by choice, and if not, what were some of the reasons, why they even bothered to answer the survey, you know? And The thing that I kept hearing over and over again was, uh, I really want to talk about this. Nobody's talking about it. I have no one to talk to about this. I really want to talk about it. We ended up getting about 1,900 responses in the first week. Wow. Which is scary. (laughs) It was scary as hell. I'm like, who are all these people? Oh, my God. And after two weeks, we had well over 3,500 responses. So that's good for me because I was thinking, oh, I guess I have a good film topic here (laughs) that people are going to be interested in. Um, But I heard from people who were child-free by choice. I heard from people who were child-free by circumstance. People talked about their relationships with their families and friends and religious institutions, about frustrations at work, and also very, you know, with very defiant sort of attitudes about it and a lot of sort of strength and, and humor, honestly. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was really amazing and eye-opening, but mostly like just people really, really want to talk about this. Yeah. And I think that's also part of the reason why some, if not most, but at least a very big chunk of the people in our community are really pissed off. And they look for spaces to vent. Uh, You know, there's some Facebook groups. We talked about this as well. um, Right. Where people are just like really mean. But I think, I don't think that they're inherently mean. It's not like they're mean people. I think they just are so fed up with, you know, having to deal with the pronatalists in their lives telling them that there's something wrong with them. 
that they have to right. like lash out in places, you know, where there are other childhood people who will be able to understand. So there is a need for a connection. There is really a need for that community to to strengthen, I guess. And I think it's it's really important. That's why to carry the conversation as well. Yeah, I think so too. I and we we've talked about this. This this like I don't really like when people are really mean and say really nasty things about parents and about children uh, because there's a lot of that. And you know there are spaces to do it. I'm not in those spaces anymore. Um, our Facebook group, my so-called selfish life, we have a policy of respect. Uh, we try to do our best with that. Um, I always say that my issue is not with parents and it's not with children. It's with pronatalism. It's with this idea that uh, we are expected to have children, that we're supposed to have children for the good of the economy, (laughs) for capitalism. We're supposed to have children because of patriarchy, because our place is in the home, having children and not out in the world bothering the men who want to have serious conversations. Um, And nationalism, you know, we want to make more people that look exactly like us, and we want less people that don't look like us. I mean, these are all connected to pronatalism, and these are all really problematic things that affect people's lives every day. That's that's where I have my issues. I'm not going to, like, I really, I mean, the kids screaming in the restaurant or on the airplane is, Yes, very annoying. But I'm going to bet that everybody on that airplane is annoyed by that kid. You don't have to like have or not have children to feel a kind of way about that screaming kid. So I don't know. That's always kind of where I come down on this. Yeah, I think hating parents and hating, I mean, hating parents and hating kids because of pronatalism is sort of like hating men because of patriarchy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot about men that, well, I would say <laughs> I would say it's a little bit hard to deal with. <laughs> That's what I would say. It's a little bit hard to deal with. But I don't hate men. I do do really hate patriarchy. But it's the whole concept. Right. It's not yes. the men, because even there are even women who are you know part of the patriarchy. Sure, absolutely. And pronatalism is not only women who are mothers. Also, there are also men who are part of of this. Um, idea that all women have to reproduce and become moms and whatnot. So I think being mad at the concept is good. Being mad at the people is maybe not (laughs) so good. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that we all grow up within pronatalism, just like we grow up within patriarchy and we learn these lessons from them without even realizing it. You know, we grow up watching, we all watch the same TV shows and we um, hear the same messages from people around. You know, the whole the whole biological clock thing, which is such a cliche, right? Like everybody knows about the biological clock. They talk about the biological clock. It's in like every other film that has a woman in her 30s. They have to talk about the biological clock. There is no such thing as a biological clock, okay? There isn't. I have two highly respected physicians in my film, both talking about this. And they're like, yeah, no, there's nothing that goes off in your body suddenly that you wake up in the morning, like I must have children. No, there's a sociological clock. There is a feeling that you're getting older and your fertility has a finite time. There's the idea that all your friends are having children around you and you may be feeling left behind. There's an idea that you feel like you really do have to fulfill your female destiny. 
Um, you know, all of these things contribute to this feeling that you want, you, you need like this urgency to have a child. But there's, there's no, like, you don't have a little, like, alarm clock in your belly that's going to go off. Even though it is, it is a, a phrase that we use all the time, and everyone knows what it means. And it's, you know, it was invented by a journalist in the 70s. <laughs> there's no scientific, like, background for this phrase. <laughs> it was this writer for the Washington Post that invented it. Was it talking about women... Yeah, it was a he, Obviously. a guy named Richard, Richard Cohen, yeah. who wrote an article about how his all of the women he knew were having baby panic. But the whole the whole article was based on a imaginary conversation with this imaginary woman <laughs> during an imaginary lunch. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. You can actually read that article online. You can just Google biological clock newspaper story or something, and you, you'll be able to read it. It's amazing. It's just unbelievable. But, you know, it was written in 1978, and that was a time of great advances for women. Uh, birth control, abortion, being able to control your future in a way you never could, economical, economic uh, power, uh, the workplace opening up for women. The 70s were a time where women really, like, sort of leapt ahead, finally, in their own, being able to make their own decisions, live their own lives. Well, there's always a pushback, you know, when, when something like that happens. And I think that the people love this idea of the biological clock because it was pushing back at all these gains that women had made. And it's like, no, 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 no. You better go have some babies now. You know, stop, stop having all this fun and money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, which led right into the 80s, which were this huge conservative, in the United States anyway, huge conservative time that tried to derail <laughs> all the advances. But I think that's what happens. You know, you get these advances and you get pushbacks. And that was part of it. Yeah. Well, I can't wait for your film to come out. Like, seriously, I'm like, I really want that film to come out. I really want to see it. I want to, like, make a viewing in my city and tell people <laughs> to come and watch it. Totally. I, I'm, yeah. really, I'm really looking forward to it. Totally. So if, if people want to uh, watch your previous films, where can they find them? rent them or right. so, buy them or yeah so the easiest thing to do is to go to my website which is trixiefilms.com uh t-r-i-x-i-e f-i-l-m-s.com trixie films is my company on trixie films you can get links to all of my films whether they're free to watch or you have to rent them you've got links to everything you can read all the articles i've written you can listen to the podcast I used to do about Downton Abbey, the TV show. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on Trixie Films. So if you want to look at any of my older work, it's all there. And there's also a link to the current film, to my so-called selfish life, which has its own website. Awesome. Uh, I could seriously just sit down and talk to you for hours on end. I know. You're <laughs> such an amazing person. And <laughs> So interesting. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to let you go. So before I do, Aww, I yeah. know, boo. Before boo. I do let you go, uh, is there anything you would like to tell my audience? Anything at all? Well, first, I want to say that Isabel rocks and Child Free Girls rocks. We have like a mutual love society. I think I, I just love the stuff they do. So got to check it all out. As for me, yeah, I would love you all if you're interested in this topic or curious. MySelfishLife.com 
is the website where everything is to do with the film. Um, you can learn more about the film. You can watch some trailers, uh, get a little preview. You can also watch these awesome one-minute videos that people in our audience and community have made and find out how you can make one of your own. We call them selfish selfies. They're, they're great. Um, there's not enough media out there that has a realistic portrayal of child-free people. So I'm very happy we have these videos. And finally, if you, if you find this interesting and want to help us get this film finished as quickly as possible, there is also a page there where you can donate. Um, you can donate by PayPal. You can do a tax-deductible donation. Um, and every little bit helps. Um, all, of, all of the small donations help us get the big donations. It just all adds up. So if you've got a few bucks sitting around that you maybe don't need this week. <laughs> um, we, would, we would love your support. And we would really love you to be part of our community. And uh, myselfishlife.com has the links to all our social media and a link to, be, uh, to get our newsletter, which comes every two or three months. I think that's everything. But yeah, I would love to hear from you and, and see you on, online somewhere. Awesome. So uh, to my audience, I'm going to leave you all of Therese's links down here to the Trixie Films page, to her new documentaries page. You can go and check it out. Her resources are so much fun. So you can go ahead and watch those oh, yeah. films. They are a lot of fun. I really like yeah, watching them. Yeah, they are. They're cool. Yeah. So, and uh, she's also a very cool lady, as you could tell. So we're all here. Thank you. She's really rooting for you because we do watch that film very soon. Thanks. Yeah, we can't wait. We no. cannot wait to finish it and get it out into the world. It's going to be so much fun. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for your time. It's been such a pleasure having you here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the Cape community. We hope you tune in next week for our newest episode. And since we love hanging out with you, please be sure to follow us on social media at The Honest Uproar and visit our website at thehonestuproar.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to share with your fierce, child-free firecracker friends. Until next time, continue fueling your inner fire.